This is Sit Rep on BFBS with Kate Chabot. This week, heading for the exit, what will Afghanistan look like after 2014? This drawdown will continue, and by the end of next year, our war in Afghanistan will be over. And can the world do anything about North Korea's nuclear tests? Additional sanctions, of course, have the most effect if they have the strong support of China. The United States has taken another step this week towards the 2014 deadline for ending combat operations in Afghanistan. A new ISAF commander has taken charge, tasked with overseeing that drawdown. As General John Allen leaves Afghanistan, he says coalition forces should be seeking to win this war. And his successor, General Joseph Dunford, says he's working towards the same aim. What's not changed is our commitment to accomplish the mission. And more importantly, what's not changed is the inevitability of our success. In his State of the Union address, President Obama set a new target to get tens of thousands of U.S. troops home. America will complete its mission in Afghanistan and achieve our objective of defeating the core of al-Qaeda. Tonight, I can announce that over the next year, another 34,000 American troops will come home from Afghanistan. This drawdown will continue, and by the end of next year, our war in Afghanistan will be over. And then what? How can the countries who fought in Afghanistan influence the country's future once combat troops have left? On the line from Washington, D.C. is Michael Evans of The Times. Hello, Michael. Um, the president said the war will soon be over. How much thought is there in Washington about how America will influence Afghanistan post-2014? The whole sort of perception in Washington is that the war is over already, really. I think President Obama has done his best to tell the public here that, you know, he's He's brought two wars to an end, one in Iraq and one in Afghanistan. But obviously, post-2014 is going to be absolutely vital because the Afghans will be on their own, effectively. Uh, there will be a force remaining behind from America, anything between eight to 15,000 troops. But, of course, that's minuscule compared to the uh, forces they used to have, which was 100,000. So I think there, there'll be a sort of diminishing returns. They'll be there to help continue training the Afghan National Security Forces, who by then will be completely in charge of security in the country. And they'll also have a continuing vital role in counterterrorism. In other words, making sure that al-Qaeda doesn't slip back into Afghanistan from Pakistan. But the trouble is, if you've got far fewer troops to do that, uh, it's going to be a lot more difficult. And I think uh, the whole feeling now is that uh, America wants to get out of Afghanistan. They promised a long-term commitment there, and I'm sure that's absolutely valid and correct, but actually they will have far fewer troops there uh, post-2014 available to do the job that is uh, probably still will be necessary. And in his State of the Union address, Mr Obama spoke for 40 minutes before even mentioning Afghanistan uh, beyond ending the war. How interested are ordinary Americans, do you think? I think that reflects exactly what the view is uh, uh, in this country, which is that, you know, everyone is focusing on the economy, on jobs, uh, and the way forward for this country uh, domestically. And Afghanistan is very much yesterday's war. Remember, there are you know, huge numbers of troops actually still in Afghanistan, which means there are huge numbers of families here who very much have not forgotten that Afghanistan is still a war. But 
for the vast majority of uh, people in this country, uh, Afghanistan is over. Well, also with me in the studio is BFBS defence analyst Christopher Lee. Hello, Christopher. Uh, we'll soon be back in Afghanistan's fighting season, and that will presumably be a big test of the readiness of Afghan forces to stand it alone. Well, it's not just Afghan forces, it's everybody. I mean, the, the, the so-called summer fighting season, which will run, say, from, say, next month down to about September, October, it's almost double, treble the intensity of fighting in that period. It's, it's almost sort of medieval in the, in the sense that you've got to have a fighting season. And so uh, President Obama actually does know, doesn't know what military advice he's likely to get about what happens at the end in 2014. And he's probably not going to uh, know that until he's advised by his commander in October, November, December, that sort of period, after what happens now. Because then there will be a, a better judge of A, what's needed for next year, say February, February this time next year, then that drawdown will probably be more or less complete, 9, 10, 11 to 15,000 left. But he won't know what he could expect to have to justify because he really does want, and he said, for example, it will achieve its objective. And this is very, very important. We will achieve our objective. And he regards that as part of our legacy. But, you know, as, as Mike says, uh, it's, uh, and as Bill Clinton says, the economy is stupid as far as the, uh, the, the American people are concerned. Well, the most senior British officer in Afghanistan is Lieutenant General Nick Carter, and he told our reporter Laura Hawkins the picture on the ground has changed enormously as the drawdown continues. The plain fact is that when you look more broadly at Afghanistan, um, it's in a different place to what it was even two, three, four years ago. The Afghan security forces are now much better led and better organised than they ever were. And what we also see is that whilst there are still serious incidents occur and Kabul is often threatened and you see these um, very difficult incidents happening, the plain fact is that 90% of the Afghan population rarely now encounters violence. Um, and so much of the violence, probably 40 to 50% of it, is contained in only 5 to 10 districts in Afghanistan. So for the average Afghan, life is really very different. Now, we know the PBs are closing quite rapidly now, um, but is it true that Camp Suit is actually being built upon to make even bigger? Um, I don't think we've made any decisions on how our footprint will look like into the longer-term future. We do know that we have um, a reasonably aggressive plan to reduce our infrastructure in Helmand, in line with the transitional process to Afghans. And the Afghans are taking over many of the bases that we once occupied, and we expect that by the end of this year we'll be down to very few bases in central Helmand and we'll be concentrated very much in Bastion. As to what our presence looks like up in Kabul, um, again, I think it's too early to say. We know that we're committed to the Afghan Army Officer Academy out at Karga and I suspect that we'll have other appointments and posts in Kabul, but the full detail of it is yet to be fully worked through. That was Lieutenant General Nick Carter. Um, Christopher, we heard there no final decisions have yet been made post-2014, the environment there. Does that surprise you? Is that what you're talking about, that you have to wait till the fighting season has passed? But that, yeah, OK, that, that is very much about the waiting of the fighting season's passed, getting a better assessment, the Americans getting a better assessment of what's needed for 2014 and beyond because it's the what the ANA, the, uh, uh, the uh, Afghan National Army, can do in its capabilities. What the... But all the planning for structure, uh, logistics, etc., is going on now. And they do know things. But you can't say, right, that's it, we're going to commit ourselves. Because General Nick, he's going to say, look, I'm a soldier. It's not what I do. But the one thing they don't know, 
and nobody can figure out yet is how, let's call them Taliban, are going to react not when everybody's gone or 9,000 left and 1,200 Brits left or whatever. It's in this great period because Taliban, etc., exist on the idea that they are fighting a war. And the general feeling that I'm told anyway is that during this summer period and then the chase that goes from, say, October until next February when other people are pulling out, is that their attacks, they will try and make them more spectacular. And therefore, this will raise the temperature politically in both London, Washington, etc. And that confuses the picture. So it's, what will Taliban be doing when everybody's gone? That will change the picture entirely. He's right. General Nick's right when he says, you know, it's a much different place than it was two or three years ago, and nobody, nobody's doubting that. But the fear is that the ANA may not be able to hack it in certain areas. For example, can they, can they resolve problems in South Helmand? Probably in North Helmand, yeah, uh, uh, North Afghanistan, that may be the case, but they may not be able to do it elsewhere. And so, therefore, out of the 23 major districts, um, you may be left with 10 where you can't actually sort things. And that is a judgment which the, the so-called coalition of the willing have got to say, do we hang on? And in what force do we hang on? And so if you put in a training force, do we need a bigger protection force? Because of the situation is far more delicate. Um, briefly, Michael Evans, the president, spoke about the threat of extremists in North Africa in the State of the Union speech. Has he mentally moved on from Afghanistan then? I think everyone has. I think the Pentagon's uh, moved on. I think uh, they feel they've already driven out al-Qaeda from Afghanistan, which is effectively true. There's still some fighters there, but the, but the, the sort of spread of these affiliated al-Qaeda groups has now become a serious, serious threat, not just to the region, but they fear threat to America itself. So North Africa, Yemen, places like that, Mali, um, there are a lot of places now which are causing great concern. And I think, yes, I think the mood has changed and they're now focusing on elsewhere. All right, Michael Evans in Washington. Thank you for your time today. Sit Rep with Kate Still to come this week, turning Mali's youth against extremists. We must be very careful not to make the same mistake in Mali, which is to rely too heavily on the military. There, there has to be uh, another part of this, which is going to be, in Mali's case, political reform in Bamako and re-establishing basic governance. And the TA on TV, but will the recruitment drive work? During that State of the Union address, President Obama turned to another international crisis, North Korea's third nuclear test. The underground explosion felt like an earthquake, according to some in the region, and further raised tensions over the regime's nuclear ambitions. The UN com condemned North Korea's actions, and Mr Obama warned Pyongyang it can't ignore international fury. The regime in North Korea must know they will only achieve security and prosperity by meeting their international obligations. Provocations of the sort we saw last night will only further isolate them as we stand by our allies, strengthen our own missile defense, and lead the world in taking firm action in response to these threats. Well, the Foreign Secretary William Hague hinted this time North Korea has even angered previously friendly nations. If North Korea continues in this way, it will face increasing isolation and increasing pressure from all of the members of the Security Council. There is additional pressure that can be placed on North Korea, additional sanctions that can be put in place uh, that, of course, have the most effect if they have the strong support of China. 
Well, let's pick that up now with Andrea Berger, an expert on nuclear issues at the Royal United Services Institute, who recently has been to North Korea. Andrea, a good to speak to you today. No surprise the UN condemned the test, but were you surprised to see China joining in the criticism? Well, one of the things is that, unfortunately, China's own reaction to this particular test wasn't that much more strongly worded than in 2006 and 2009. What is a notable change is what little action has occurred uh, since China put out its foreign ministry statement about the test. And they've recalled or called in the North Korean ambassador and made that a very public move, which is unusual for China. Um, But it will remain to be seen how much more assertive China is willing to be in stepping up its response to the North Korean nuclear test. How likely do you think it is that China will actually uh, support more sanctions against North Korea? Well, I think it's under very heavy pressure to do so. And the UN Security Council will be meeting in the coming weeks. And there will be enormous pressure for them to bolster the existing sanctions regime. And there is some opportunity there to make meaningful change. Notably, China needs to start implementing the sanctions framework that's actually in place. The framework itself is is pretty strong at present, but it's just being remarkably poorly implemented. It does seem that nothing seems to work, though. Is there anything else the international community can do? Well, well, that's definitely an excellent starting point. Filling what's now a pretty empty shell of a sanctions regime by having China actively implement its provisions will go a long way in um, treating two of the problems that are associated with the North Korean nuclear issue. And the first is naturally that North Korea continues to develop its nuclear program. Cutting off access to external supplies and technology will hinder its pursuits um, in advancing technology. But they also prevent North Korea from selling any technology that it does produce, and that's something the North has been quite willing to do in the past and is a very worrying development. Christopher, why is China so angry about this test? Um, North Korea, won't call it a client state, but the Chinese always felt that they had something with North Korea. It was like one of the, you know, one, like one of the children almost. The other thing is if you happen to be uh, China, you look at China and see where you are. You are now, with North Korea, say, becoming, let's call it a, a nuclear weapon state, but it's not like, like tomorrow, you know, 5, 10, 15 years down the line, maybe. Who knows? But the point is China is then surrounded. It's got Soviet, uh, what was the Soviet Union system, Russia, uh, Pakistan, India, North Korea, A, that makes them surrounded by uh, nuclear weapon states. Now, it's not a big step up, but it's an important step up. Also, talking to the Chinese, they start saying, uh, listen, um, if North Korea gets a nuclear, cap- nuclear weapons capability, uh, people have said, well, Japan will want one. Well, the chances are that Prime Minister Abe would never be able to get it through the, uh, through the, uh, through the, uh, the Japanese system. What would happen, though, what would possibly happen, is the Americans then say, we will deploy our systems in um, main island Japan, also South Korea. You start to build up the big picture. Then you spin it on from there, and you spin it into, let's say, Iran. And then the Saudis say, well, you better put some of your nuclear-capable systems down in Saudi Arabia to counter what's going on in Iran. In the meantime, you've got 
the Israel response to, to that sort of thing. And so China looks at it. China's a very cunning, cute, and very intelligent member of the Security Council. And it do, it's losing its grip. And so for the first time, we're seeing... We're talking to chi Chinese diplomats, and they're talking about North Korea as if it's going wrong. And I haven't heard that before. Andrea Berger, um, we often assume countries like North Korea and Iran are using their nuclear programs as a bargaining chip. What does North Korea want? Well, I think one of the things that the international community is uh, increasingly coming around to understanding is the fact that North Korea may not be willing to bargain away its nuclear program as we previously suspected. Um, in fact, if anything, it looks like a nuclear-armed North Korea is largely here to stay. So it's very difficult to ascertain exactly what North Korea might be looking to achieve with a nuclear test. And one of the possibilities, really, is that it's a simple demonstration of strength, both internationally and at home, to perhaps um, an army that's been a little bit wary of the moves by Kim Jong-un to uh, increase emphasis on the welfare of the people, or at least he says that's what he's emphasizing. And that's made the army quite nervous recently. So this may be a move uh, to signal that Kim Jong-un is not going to be deviating from the military first policy of his father. Uh, in addition, it may be about showing strength internationally, whether that's to South Korea, but probably most notably in this particular case to the United States, who may be seeing this nuclear test in conjunction with their 12th of December long-range rocket launch um, and worrying that Pyongyang has uh, the resolve to develop an intercontinental strike capability. All right, Andrea Berger from the Royal United Services Institute. Thanks for your time today. This is BFBS. Sit rep. The French-led operation against militants in Mali became more complicated this week. After early success, jihadi fighters returned to the city of Gao with suicide bombs and a four-hour street battle. As predicted, the militants fled towns and cities only to regroup, and it could be the battle for northern Mali is only now beginning. But are there lessons to be learned on the other side of Africa? After decades of violent civil war in Somalia, there are now signs of progress. The Islamist militia al-Shabaab pulled out of the capital Mogadishu 18 months ago and Somalia has a new president after its first democratic elections in decades. Are there clues there for the future of Mali? The question I put to James Ferguson, the author of a new book on the country. The first thing that has become very obvious is that Al-Qaeda and its affiliates have become very adept at exploiting ungoverned space and we've been seeing huge amounts of ungoverned space uh, filling up with uh, the bad guys in, in, uh, in Mali. That's an area the size of northern France. And uh, Somalia is uh, famously the world's most failed state. There's been no proper central government there for 20 years, best part of 20 years. And uh, it is, things are getting a little better there now. So the lesson is that maybe Somalia is a model. Al-Shabaab, the uh, Al-Qaeda franchise in Somalia, is on the back foot. Not defeated yet, but it's uh, in retreat. It's been pushed out of Mogadishu. And so... I'm, I, there are people, and I agree with them, that Somalia might tentatively be a kind of a model for uh, other places in Africa which are now undergoing something quite similar. Is there anything that can be learned in terms of international intervention? Intervention is always extremely risky. You cannot predict what's going to happen with it. Um, but I think what's clear is that there can be... Uh, it's also a lesson from Afghanistan. There can be no 
purely military solution, uh, certainly not imposed. Uh, you have to remember the other half uh, of, of solving countries that are breaking down like this, which is the civilian part, the political reform, uh, looking after society and trying to get all those things that uh, a country needs to function, uh, not just a, a, a government and law and order and so on, but all the things like jobs and security that go with it and trade uh, and so on. So we must be very careful not to... Um, make the same mistake in Mali, which is to rely too heavily on the military. There, there has to be uh, another part of this, which is going to be, in Mali's case, political reform in Bamako and re-establishing basic governments, governments uh, in the northern parts of that country. Never mind democracy. This is not about imposing or exporting democracy. This is just about re-establishing the basic governance that any government needs uh, to, to, as a platform to sort of, uh, start rebuilding their own country when it's failed as much as these countries have. And that balance is very tricky, very difficult to get right. It is very difficult because the the military part of these solutions is always, in a way, the easy part. It's very much quicker, whereas the civilian reconstruction can take years and years and years. It's a long-haul project. Uh, this is something, again, that we got wrong in Afghanistan. We, we the, the military campaign got way ahead of the, uh, the, the, the business of rebuilding local government in the south of Afghanistan. Uh, it's always going to be the way because the two things do operate at different speeds, but trying to bridge that gap between the political and civilian reform is extremely tricky. But it must be done because the, the one cannot succeed without the other. In the um, specific example of al-Shabaab, described as having links to al-Qaeda, do you get the impression that they have objectives that are purely confined to Somalia or is there a wider agenda? It's a very good question. Um, and I think it's a question that al-Shabaab themselves have not yet answered. Uh, that is a movement that is quite badly split. There are competing factions at the top of al-Shabaab. Uh, they are very loosely the, the international faction and the indigenous faction. Uh, the indigenous lot are not thought to be keen on exporting their brand of ideology abroad, but the international uh, faction is. It's one of the great sort of fears, isn't it, of, of uh, General Carter Ham, the commander of US uh, Africa Com, a central commander, um, who worries that these disparate uh, Islamist groups right across Africa could link up. Um, Al-Shabaab, Boko Haram, Ansadine, all the rest of it, sharing training, sharing arms. And if it were to come, up, come about, uh, then there is an arc of Al-Shabaab links and Al-Qaeda influence right the way across Africa from the east to the west. And that is um, a sort of nightmare scenario for security planners. However, there's very little evidence of that link-up happening yet. The evidence seems to be circumstantial. It is a risk. Uh, I think we should be very careful not to exaggerate that risk. Your book is called The Most Dangerous Place on Earth. In your introduction, though, you do admit that might not be necessarily the case anymore. If Somalia isn't the most dangerous place on Earth, where is? That Somalia book was a two-year project, and uh, in that time the most amazing things have happened. It's one of the hazards of being an author of books is that you keep getting overtaken by, by events. We've had the whole of the Arab Spring, Bin Laden's been killed, uh, Libya happened, Syria has happened. I would think that Syria has got to be right up there at the moment. It depends who for. Are we talking about the, the dangerous for the rest of the world or dangerous for the people that live there? Uh, Somalia certainly remains a, a very risky place to live for a lot of people. Um, as, as you know, it's, it's also very vulnerable to famine. Um, piracy goes on there. Um, Al-Shabaab are not defeated. Uh, suicide bombs in the capital. It's still got to be 
Somalia, I think, one of the top five anyway. It's not right at the top at the moment, but uh, it, uh, it does have the potential to come back at any point. Going back soon? I'm looking forward to going back to Somalia. Uh, and I am. I, I'm sounding very negative, but I think actually it does have a chance for a much better future. Um, what we haven't mentioned today is the extraordinary diaspora of, uh, of Somalia, which I think is quite unusual, quite unique, in fact. Um, as I said, two million Somalis driven abroad uh, by the civil war. They are now, very impressively, a great number of, of them are prepared to go back and want to go back to try and reconstruct their country. That's, that's the future. That's where Somalia has a chance because the diaspora do want to uh, help rebuild their country. James Ferguson and his book, The World's Most Dangerous Place, is out now in hardback. Um, Christopher, William Hague, the Foreign Secretary, has been making a speech today. Is there a sense that foreign policy is that thinking is actually changing? What's happening is this. Uh, if you take Africa, and he's really sort of thinking Africa because this has been the thing that's kicked in into, in, in, into going. There are eight countries, eight states, Western Africa and Central Africa, where you have terrorist problems. Hague, uh, Cameron, uh, British foreign policy was built on the fact you didn't have to know about these countries. In fact, so much so when Algiers blew and up. And why would that be? Um, because a lot of it they didn't bother about. They were too busy thinking about other things. The resources they have in, in the intelligence gathering and intelligence nassing through JIC, for example, you know, the, the, uh, the, the terrorist group, they just didn't bother about it. And also Algiers, that's French. They can look after it. And so when the Algerian thing came up and there was probably, uh, they thought at first, 13 British uh, terrorists there, uh, British uh, hostages there, uh, Prime Minister's office said, well, what's, who, who, who's the Prime Minister of Algeria? You know, the Prime Minister. Who's the... Hague, uh, Foreign Secretary, said, I, I'm not quite sure. We'll find out. They had not had to deal with... Now, what's happening now is that British foreign policy is now supposedly changing. They're saying, let's get into these countries about which we know nothing. Let's help them with human rights. Let's help them with development. That way, we will know how they're thinking. We know who to go and talk to. We know who to pick up the phone to. And maybe that's the way to hit counter-terrorism. But they've spent the past two and a half years demolishing dismantling the very structures that they're now saying... So it's back got to square it, one, basically. They're back to square one, except they didn't rate them at all. They're getting, they're getting rid of all, for example, the, the, the consul offices. You can't do that if you want to know what's going on in the country. It's a pretty normal weekend on ITV. There's a live football match, Dancing on Ice and Jonathan Ross. And in between those programmes, live broadcasts from Afghanistan. TA Live is part of the Push to Recruit More Reservists, a central part of the strategy for the Army post-2020. But it doesn't always go according to plan. More than 20 reserves from two Royal Irish, who'd already been mobilised for deployment to Afghanistan this week, returned to Northern Ireland after learning the drawdown meant they were no longer needed. Yes, everyone is quite deflated and disappointed. Um, back to, glad to be back to Northern Ireland nonetheless, but um, annoyed we didn't get our chance to go out, you know. From Christmas, uh, it's all been up in the air. We didn't know what was happening. It's left a sour taste in a lot of people's mouths because of the uncertainty. Their employers who'd released them to the TA now have to take them back sooner than they'd expected. Christopher, is this an example of the kind of problem we'll face as we try to boost the reserve forces? Yeah, I mean, the idea is that you've got to say, let's say you've got 15,000 now, in theory, anyway, and, uh, and uh, MOD said, oh, we're going to have 30,000. Where are you going to get them from? Where are you going to get the training time from? Where are you going to get training programmes? And how do you actually get to 30,000? Distinguish between what happens when you're trying to recruit uh, regular soldiers. You can do it from anywhere. 
for example, Scottish regiments based in Hampshire. So it doesn't matter. That doesn't matter. What's important about TA is that you get them from your local high street. And that is the has to be the nub of any campaign. And when you've got them, what do you do with them? Well, BFBS reporter Charlotte Cross is also a member of the TA and she joins me now in the studio. Hello, Charlotte. Um, how have you found juggling the two careers? Um, it's been OK. I joined the TA in 1997, so my career has changed a lot over that time. I've become a lot busier. Um, but the TA is all about... Um, weekend working so if you have a job where you're not working at the weekend then it's actually quite manageable um the only difficult part probably is dragging yourself from work on a friday night when everyone else is going out socializing <laughs> dragging yourself to some training area somewhere and spending the weekend wet and cold and um, that commitment may become more mightn't it i suppose as more reliance is put on the reservists yeah exactly i mean at the moment um, a regular ta unit will uh, your minimum commitment is 27 days a year in order to get your bounty which is your annual tax-free bonus for a specialist unit like the military stabilization support group someone like that it's only 19 days a year so it is very manageable but under the new terms and conditions that are that are going to come out later this year we could see that going up to 40 days a year or something like like that and then it might become difficult and also things like mandatory training because at the moment training is voluntary so if you can't turn up if you don't want to turn up you don't have to you can ring up on a friday night and say i can't come in if it's mandatory you can't do that and that could clash um, to put yourself in the position of those people from two royal irish how much more difficult is it for somebody if they're a reservist to be told actually you're not going to be deployed to afghanistan than someone who is perhaps a part of the regular army who may be expected to be deployed or stood down at, at short notice well i think that from a from a reservist perspective, if, if you are putting yourself forward to a mobilisation, that's quite a big step because you are leaving everything you know. You're, you're walking away you know, from your job. You have to tell your employer. You have to tell your family. You have to break it to them. You're going probably somewhere dangerous. It's quite a big psychological step to actually volunteer for that deployment. So... Um, and I think you, your whole life is changing, whereas for a regular, it's not. It's part of your job. It's what you do anyway. Um, so I think it's quite um, a much bigger step for a reservist. And to have them turn around and say to you, you're not going to the place where you think you are and you might be backfilling in the UK instead, when you've built yourself up to a, you know, an operational deployment, that can be a very hard thing to take. OK, shall I go anywhere soon? that you know of? Not that I know of. <laughs> thanks, Charlie, very much. Well, that's all we have time for this week. My thanks to Michael Evans, Andrea Berger, and, of course, to Christopher Lee. Do get in touch if you've any thoughts on the topics we've covered or something you think we should be covering. We're on Twitter at BFBS Sitret, but for now, me, Kate Chabo. Thanks for listening. We'll be back again next week. Bye-bye. This is Sit Rep on BFBS.